you have found the Thinking Mind podcast. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Anya and Rebecca. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. So I thought it would be good to introduce you guys to the audience, your new hosts for the podcast. You guys are going to be doing interviews. Rebecca, your first interview just got released last week. And Anya, your first interview will be being released next. So I thought it'd be good to have a conversation so people can get to know you a little bit. And uh, yeah, we'll take it from there and see where it goes, really. Sounds good. I guess I'd start by asking, I guess I ask everyone this, but what what do you think attracted you guys to work in mental health and, and psychiatry? Rebecca, why don't you answer first? I've always been interested in mental health, I think. But I think when I was in med school, I always thought, I wanted to become a medical doctor because that was kind of the aim going into it. I think everyone had. And I always tried to put off going into mental health. But gradually, the more I studied and then when I became a foundation doctor, my first job was in mental health and I absolutely loved it. And I I remember going into work and leaving and thinking, I can't believe I'm being paid to do this Um, because it didn't feel like a job. I was just enjoying myself so much and I looked forward to work every day. And I was going in early to find out what happened to my patients overnight. Um, And then I had other jobs, geriatrics, um, ophthalmology, medicine. And I just didn't enjoy them as much. And I didn't get the same satisfaction when I was leaving. Um, So I thought I did do oncology, which I did really enjoy. Yeah, at the end of it, I just thought mental health was the one for me. I loved it so much. Um, And by that point, yeah, I, I applied for a CAMS job. And then I applied for my training. And what do you think, what was it about the nature of the work that, that attracted you? I think every patient is different. And I think every patient is so complex because everyone's presentation in mental health is dependent on their life and every single person has a different life. So you're never going to hear the same thing or see the same thing. If you compare that to a pneumonia or a heart attack, you kind of do see the same thing. And I don't want to be disrespectful to any other professions, but... I did once hear someone say the heart is a glorified pump, whereas the brain is just so complex. And also, I think there's so much that we don't know about mental health at the moment compared to other specialities in medicine and surgery. And I think that makes it a really interesting subject to study and move forward. And I also think in mental health, there's so many avenues you can take in terms of research, in terms of you can really go anywhere with it. And there are so many extra things that you can do. For example, this podcast, which I think I personally obviously find very interesting, but I think also the general public do. If you compare that to other specialities in medicine. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the complexity, the individuality of, of every patient and the fact that there's still a lot of mystery. Exactly, yeah. And that's very true. And And I think people don't, acknowledge how vast psychiatry is just because you know we deal with outcomes like we deal with a patient with a set of problems that's basically an outcome that has many different inputs like they could have problems going on at a biological level which is more classically medical but then they could have all sorts of other problems you know psychological social obviously it fits into every aspect of someone's life I think Mm -hmm. and Anya what about you a lot of similarities actually with what you've said Rebecca like I always found the brain interesting and 
I I think one of the things that drew me to medicine was, I guess, a desire to get to know people a bit better and what makes people what makes people tick and what makes people work. Um, I similarly thought that general medicine or something like that would be would be the way forward for me initially but then I started to work and actually it didn't I didn't find it as exciting as my sort of my other colleagues who went into it did um I met some psychiatrists in my early jobs who were who spoke about how much they loved their work um and how much they yeah how much they enjoyed their working life and I think that piqued my interest um as well because they just seemed happier than some other colleagues um and then and then I tried it and I liked it and I think I then saw sort of bits of mental health in the other specialties that I worked in so kind of working with you know patients coming to A&E with either depressive crises you know suicidal or dealing with the effects of um drugs or alcohol um and I just I really I felt like I could do more for them than I could being just who I am and how I work as a clinician I felt like there was more that I could give um to people coming with those kinds of problems I guess similar to what Rebecca said it feels like there's a big difference that can be made um in psychiatric work and for patients with mental illness I enjoyed the I guess advocating for people in that way and so yeah for me for me it just feels like an exciting part of medicine to work in yeah where hopefully through through our work there's a lot that we can do for people yeah i think i I think what you said makes sense i also think unlike other specialties you to be an effective clinician you have a responsibility to look after your own mental health simply because i i don't think it's possible to be an effective clinician if you yourself are struggling not that you wouldn't have struggles of course because everyone has struggles but what i'm saying is you kind of have to walk the walk um, it's easy to be a fat cardiologist you know you can be a cardiologist who doesn't take care of your health and you can still prescribe the correct treatments I think it's a lot harder to do in mental health I think you very much have to lead by example and again that doesn't mean creating some illusion of invulnerability or omnipotence like pretending that you don't mm. have any weakness um, but merely being open about the fact that you do have your own weaknesses and your vulnerabilities and then sort of confronting them head on and taking those steps to deal with them. I think this mm. especially applies to psychotherapy because it's it's like sufficient it's a sufficiently intense intervention that if if you have your own unresolved issues it's going to come into the consultation room. So you really have a responsibility there, but I think it applies even to non psychotherapeutic work within mental health as well i guess i I, the only thing i would challenge uh in what you've said is i think that that is true but also idealized as in i think psychiatrists are still human and i think the you know we're no better than any of our other specialty colleagues yeah um in terms of our our ability to look after ourselves or um be uh, I guess on, honest um, with ourselves so I think mm-hmm. you know I think all doctors we all we are probably all more effective at being clinicians if we're honest with our own 
vulnerabilities and look after those but i think we all fall into traps yeah yeah no definitely it's a it's a it's a thing of constant vigilance like it's something it's not you can never really feel it's a practice it's never something that you feel you're done with it requires constant attention it's so easy to fall into mental traps i find but i guess at least psychiatric training again compared to some of my other friends who are going through other specialty trainings at the moment it feels like there's more emphasis on looking after those things like what you've said it, it's talked about and people are aware of and the it feels like the training program tries to look after you to encourage you to be aware of those traps do you guys think that uh, psychiatric training poses importantly different challenges to training in conventional medical specialties and if so what, what do you think those differences are I think definitely there'll be different challenges. Um, I think the things that we see and deal with are sometimes very, very difficult and aren't something that anyone really comes into contact with day-to-day life and can be really, really saddening when you leave your day-to-day job and go home. And I think there is a skill to be developed that only comes with time, being able to switch off. Or I do think over time people do become a little bit flattened to those things at work. And that's not to say that you're flattened to those things in your outside life. It's probably a skill to separate the two. But there's no doubt about it. The things that we see and hear in our jobs is really, really difficult. And I think I am slightly becoming blunted at work at least. But I don't want to become too blunted because I want to still be able to offer that level of empathy that my patients need. So by blunted, you mean having that element of detachment? Completely, yeah. Yeah, which is which is important to a degree. I don't I don't think you can do this job without having an element of detachment, even if it's a you could call it a compassionate detachment. Yeah, but still, some uh, amount of detachment is necessary just because of the volume of people that we see. Yeah, definitely. And the degree of their difficulties. And sometimes you will meet people that sometimes remind you of yourself as well. And I think it's really difficult in that instance, especially when I have patients that are maybe the same age as me or have come from similar backgrounds as me. I think it's really difficult to try and keep that barrier there because you think I could be in that situation. That could be me. Um, I think that's probably for me been the most difficult um, challenge so far. And just so people are aware, one of the reasons why... I got you you guys specifically on board is you're quite early in your training. So I'm kind of middle end. So I'm a cu- hope, hopefully a couple of years away from consultancy. Um, but I really, what I envisaged was bringing some people on board for the podcast that could take the project with them through their training. Are you guys in your first or second year? First, very much first. So I guess my next question is, what you're in the beginning of your training you've just started being exposed to psychiatry and all the challenges Uh, what then attracts you to doing something like podcasting and how do you think it might complement your your training process Mm. i think for me one of the one of the interests is the uh, sort of the, the public communication side of um of what doing something like a podcast allows that you can speak to people who are in some way expert in in whatever it is that they do uh, or in whatever thoughts that they have about about mental health or mental illness um and you can help them communicate those ideas and those thoughts more broadly um in a very like digestible format you know you can have it on in the background you might not listen to every 
second of it um but you you know you can take something away um and i think in you know one of my interests is research but i think one of the problems with research is that actually you know the public taxpayer find out like knows so little about what's done um and i think that's no one's specific fault i think it's just that uh you know some aspects of research are really hard to communicate and really hard to understand um you have to make an effort to communicate it and i think there aren't kind of specific avenues to communicate um things so i think and then i think the i guess the issue that then public communication might solve is just i think when people are better informed you get better discussions you get better conversations and then Mm -hmm. you know a, a political level or just a personal level it creates more chance for change hopefully definitely one of the prob- one of the reasons i uh, started the podcast is because i wanted to cut out as much as possible the middleman between expertise and the public so that they could get you know direct from the source high quality information about what's going on you know both at the cutting edge but also just in general the the accumulation of knowledge so far and I think not only is there a lack of communication between academia and the public, but there's a lot of miscommunication. I think journalists often, you know, they're pressured, they have to produce a lot of stories, and it's very easy for them to take a research paper and try and make a headline out of it, irrespective of where that paper fits within the broader context of the field. You know, it's very easy to take a study and, and journalists aren't necessarily trained in scientific criticism. So they don't necessarily know what makes a good study or a bad study. Or as I said, they don't necessarily know how that fits into the rest of the research that's been done on a particular topic. And so I think there's a lack of nuance. And I, I think you're seeing it now in, in every industry, podcasting is allowing more nuance, like a more of a, a dialectic, uh, an acknowledgement of complexity rather than, you know, are the example I always use, are antidepressants good or bad? As if it's an issue that could be treated with, with, with such simplicity, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, what was about you, Rebecca? I think a lot of what Anya said, I resonate with. I think the ability to speak to these people that are experts in what they do is a privilege and is, is something that I found so interesting and enticing when when I got the email um I I like a challenge and I like to push myself so I thought it would be something interesting for me to do to see where I what I could do with it and where I could take it um and I think like Anya said as well it's so important that we we get the message across from from kind of the backbone where it's coming from from research to the public because actually it wasn't something that I've thought about but now that you've mentioned it completely true that actually what goes on behind what goes on behind the scenes is never really portrayed exactly to to the general public and the taxpayer. Mm. So you've your first interview came out last week. Um, that was with Rebecca Lawrence, a psychiatrist who herself has a diagnosis of bipolar. She's had ECT. So um, if you guys think that would be that'd be interesting, do check out that episode. How have you, Anya, your first interview is coming out next. How have you guys fi- found doing interviews so far? What has been like the challenge of, of it, do you think? I mean, I think w- 
one of the things for me that's difficult is I have always struggled with being on the spot. So, you know, when like at medical school or foundation year, sort of early years of doctor training, you know, being asked a question by by a senior about, you know, what's the diagnosis or what do you think is going on here? Um, my mind just goes blank. And, and, you know, once that's happened a few times, even if it doesn't happen the fifth time, you still think it's going to happen. So you're just a bit of a mess. Uh, so I think that has, I was aware that that would be difficult in terms of you know, having a conversation with someone that I know is going to be heard by other people and, um, you know, figuring out how to how to respond to them appropriately. Um, obviously, the helpful thing is that you're kind of asking the questions rather than coming up with the answers. Over the first lockdown, I read the Dalai Lama's book, well, one of his books about sort of, you know, how to live a happy life. And he talks about public speaking and how he sometimes gets nervous, which is hilarious. Just, you know, the idea of the Dalai Lama being experiencing anxiety but he talks about he just reminds himself that actually you know if he thinks about it as trying to say something important of course he'll feel nervous but if he just thinks about it as trying to turn up and explain something to people in a way that they might not have thought about it or share something slightly new with them then it's fine like that that's you know he's just trying to do that he's not trying to convince them that he's important or special in some way he just wants to he just wants to share something with them uh, so I'm trying to remind myself of that, but yeah, I think the nervousness has definitely been the biggest, the, a, a big challenge. Yeah, yeah. And you, Rebecca? I loved it. I really enjoyed interviewing um, Dr. Rebecca Lawrence. It was really interesting to hear what she had to say. I mean, I wouldn't have picked her um, to interview if I didn't want to talk to her. Um, I'd already heard her speak at an event that I previously went to, and just thought I want to ask this person more questions because. I think it's something that's not really spoken about that consultant psychiatrists or professionals have mental health problems themselves. And I think it's very important that people appreciate that, like we kind of said earlier, we are all human um, and we have our own and we have our own struggles. Um, so I wanted to get that across. Um, and I loved interviewing her. I think it was it was great. And I also feel like personally, on a personal level, I learned a lot from speaking to her. But obviously there were the challenges. It was it was nerve-wracking doing the first interview. Um, I can't deny that. But no, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have the same... I think I, I struggle with feeling tense before an interview. Like, I get really excited about the interview when I'm planning it and before. It's always a person I really want to speak to. But then on the day, I always, like, hope this will be cancelled. <laughs> like, <laughs> like something will, some, something will go wrong. <laughs> And it's interesting to think, like, why is that? And I think a lot of it is, like, a fear of making mistakes, yeah. a fear of being perceived as a, a failure or doing something wrong. Uh, and so I found the main things that help is obviously, firstly, practice that kind of raw desensitization of doing something over and over again and it just getting easier on a sort of unconscious level. But on a more conscious level, it's just becoming more okay with the idea that you could make a mistake, becoming more okay with the idea that someone could listen and maybe not like it so much. And I guess someone who's like ambitious could listen to that and say, but aren't you not then going to do your best and excel? Uh, but what I would say is that you can you often excel from a place of relative relaxation and calm and and also it's not about everything you 
produce being at a really high level. It's more producing at really high volume. And then that allows for the possibility of amazing things to happen. You know, with a, like you create a space, you produce a lot. I, I think this applies to everything, but you create a space where you produce a high volume of work. You do a lot. You're okay with the fact that a lot of what you produce isn't going to be amazing. And then that um, allows for really great things to happen, hopefully. Yeah. And I have to say afterwards as well, I was completely nervous before, but afterwards I came away feeling quite high and ecstatic and felt great afterwards but obviously before was different do you feel the same did you feel the same when you came afterwards after you've done the podcast yeah it is exciting it's cool like you've well I mean a you've survived so like the you know the most catastrophic thing didn't happen and you you know the the people that I've spoken to I've come away I guess being reminded of the fact that they are just lovely human people and (laughs) uh I like what you mentioned before Rebecca like it's such a cool opportunity to just get to have a human conversation with these people and um yeah so I think definitely come come away feel like a sense of accomplishment you know you've done some things that you thought would be terrible and um and actually it was reasonably enjoyable and also really cool like how lucky are we it's yeah yeah I feel the same after doing an interview uh, I really enjoy the sense of having produced something that hopefully can be of value to people that that people can take some take something away from. So, Anya, what's so? What's your upcoming interview about? So I spoke to uh, Dr. Marta DeForti and Professor Robin Murray, um, who are both consultant psychiatrists in South London, and they are also um, academic psychiatrists. So they do a lot of research. Robin originally started off doing a lot of psychosis research, but now the I guess the th- one of the things that they speak about most is cannabis and its relation to psychosis. So we speak about kind of the research and what we know about the links between cannabis and psychosis, but also a lot of their clinical work. Tomata DeForti runs a clinic for people who use cannabis and have psychosis to try and help them to, you know, sort of harm reduction. So try and reduce the amount of cannabis that they use, which is really cool and really novel. And they also run a peer group where sort of people who who use cannabis can come together now in a virtual format uh, to talk about all things cannabis. And again, I think that's a really, it's a really nice supportive environment. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important. We've, we've had Robin Murray on the podcast before just talking about psychosis. But I think addressing the link between psychosis and cannabis is very important, particularly for the general public, just because we're in a very strange phase in the West where a lot of drugs are being decriminalized. I believe cannabis has been decriminalized in the States. Um, It's been decriminalized in Malta, where I'm from. And I think there's this increasing perception that cannabis can do no harm, that it's barely even a drug. I think Marta Deforti talked Mm. about that. And there is some truth in that, in that many people can use cannabis without problems, but a, a, an important minority and significant minority can have huge problems. It can make, bring on a psychotic episode or make it worse. I've seen, I'm sure you guys have seen as well, acute psychosis uh, exacerbated by cannabis, which went away when you just took away the cannabis and didn't even need formal antipsychotic treatment. Have you guys seen any cases like that in your work so far? I have, definitely. Yeah, and I've definitely seen people's lives that have potentially been ruined 
buy cannabis. I've seen young men come in who have, obviously we don't know for certain the cause of it, but likely um, cannabis-induced psychosis. And they get discharged after a month or so and they start smoking cannabis again. They come back and I've seen patients that have been in and out for years, um, kind of following the same pattern of being well, stop taking their medications, start smoking cannabis again, and then they come back. And unfortunately, with that pattern, it's really difficult to sustain a job or a really good quality of life. And I don't think, from my perspective, the public really realise that seriousness. And I agree with you, it is a minority and most people will not be affected. But I think it's a really important um, thing for people to be aware of, especially where we're all moving towards decriminalising cannabis, I think the public really need to be aware of that risk because although low risk, the um, the result that it can have on someone's quality of life is drastic. Very drastic, yeah. I think what will end up happening in the future is we'll have polygenic risk scores for psychosis, by which I mean we'll, we'll know enough about how and which genes increase your risk for psychosis such that we can test someone's DNA and give them an indication of how vulnerable they are towards developing a psychotic illness. And then hopefully, if polygenic risk scores are done for everyone, uh, I interviewed someone named Robert Plowman recently about genetics, who seems to indicate that's probably what's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years. Then someone with a high risk for psychosis will know that, that's, that, that cannabis is a potentially very, very dangerous drug for them. Do you think people would still believe it, though? Do you think patients would actually still we would tell them that and they'd go on to not smoke cannabis? I think it would help a lot. I don't think it would necessarily work for everyone. But people respond to what they perceive, I think, to be hard scientific facts and, and biomarkers. Um, and I, I think in psychiatry, we don't have enough of that. Yeah, definitely. Necessarily. So I think it would help a lot. I don't think it would result every case for a few complicated, probably psychological and social reasons. Yeah. But it would definitely help. It's the, I guess, going back to the cannabis psychosis again. It's it's the nuance though that is, that is difficult. And I think, you know, the studies have been done to show that the the link is there between cannabis and psychosis. Um, but as ever, it's not the only thing, and it's and it's so tied up with so many social factors that it is really hard to separate, um, exactly what's causing what. So I think, yes, it's a problematic drug for some people. Um, but I guess I personally feel like to get people on side, it's finding the right way to communicate that information. I guess like thinking back to drugs education at schools, you know, you have a police officer who comes in and tells you that drugs are awful and you will die. And you're like, oh gosh, okay. And then you go to university and, you know, or even at other times at school, inevitably you will come across people who use drugs for fun because lots of drugs are fun that is why people use them and like if you can't you know if all you say like cannabis will give you psychosis cannabis will get you addicted and you will have a terrible life um just no one's going to listen to you so yes so like something like yeah exactly i mean that's wrong right that's like self-evidently wrong yeah yeah yeah. many people will use cannabis and not have any problems whatsoever i think that's a fact uh, many people will use cannabis and have some degrees of difficulties, yeah. which may vary depending on 
how much they use, how vulnerable, what's going on in the rest of your life, the social factors you mentioned. Um, and then maybe there's a tiny minority where maybe that's a, they're at really high risk and it could give them a psychotic episode, uh, which of course would alter their life significantly. And that's why we're doing two-hour podcasts about them. Yeah. Right? Like I think the one you did with Robin, Maria, and Marta the Forty is like an hour 45. Well, once you cut out some of my ums and ahs, it's, uh, you know... <laughs> closer to the hour but um but i guess sorry the i guess the and i will move away from cannabis um because clearly i love talking about it but i i feel and i may be wrong but i again i think even in psychiatry i think we as psychiatrists we can get really fixated on the drugs that our patients use i think because it's something very tangible that we can tell them to not do and i think it it feels to me like yes i'm sure there is some there are there will be people who have you know their benefits are 100% in order their flat doesn't have leaks uh you know the medication is spot on and doesn't give them side effects so they don't mind taking it and yeah all right like they and they don't have an addiction to cannabis but they you know they they use it and it makes them more unwell and it is you know as simple as that you cut out the cannabis they'll be fine but i feel um I guess I worry that we we say, well, they just need to stop using cannabis, and um, and I think it's a not as simple as that because it's addictive, and b it's you know it might be the only thing that brings them joy in their lives, even if, if for a brief time, and it makes them relaxed again, even if for a brief time, um, and it might just make the pain of their social situation slightly more tolerable, and I and. And I, yeah, I guess I worry about how black and white, that's been something that I found hard, like yeah, yeah. In, in work this year. Um, it feels so concrete, even in a specialty where actually, like Rebecca was talking about, we do take the whole person and their whole life. Yeah, no, 100%. We definitely need to move away from black and white thinking on, on either mm. end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. I mean, even like the last point I'll say on cannabis is, as well, not all cannabis is the same. It's not really one drug. It depends a lot on the THC content. And one of the reasons why this problem has gotten worse is simply because the THC content has risen so dramatically over the decades. Whereas you can have cannabis with lower THC content that's much less likely to cause these difficulties. So it's so there's so many factors on there that, that are involved. Yeah. What areas in psychiatry are you guys excited about learning more about where you think because there's a lot of different subspecialties and different areas of, of thought and, and research what, what areas do you think you guys are most keen to learn more about i myself i'm only just starting out my psychiatric career um but i think personally i'm i'm heading towards the direction of child and adolescent mental health i worked on an inpatient ward for six months which was really challenging. And I think I came away from it thinking, I don't want to do that. Um, and now I'm working on an 18 to 65-year-old male inpatient ward. And I did a few locums back on my old ward um, the past few weeks. And I've realised actually how much I really enjoy CAMS. I find the patients so complex. Um, and I don't mean that in, a, in an offensive way at all. But children and adolescents aren't really able, most of them, depending on their age, obviously, to articulate their feelings. And that adds such a 
difficult element to treating them compared to if you've got a 50-year-old who is telling you what's wrong with them because they've had a breakdown of their marriage, they're unemployed, X, Y, Z, whereas you get a 13-year-old that's self-harming their face and they can't tell you why they've been cutting their face for the past three days and you have to work with them but also you really have to think deeply with your team and yourself about what is this individual trying to tell me because they can't tell me it straight up um so i and also encompassing cams as well i I find autism and asd very interesting and other other diagnoses that come close to asd and are closely linked such as adhd and ocd which which are quite common in cams. That's interesting what you said about them not being able to articulate their difficulties. But I think what it also represents is an opportunity, the lack of ability to articulate their difficulties. Because when you see a 50-year-old, you're often seeing someone who's... The, the narrative that they've constructed about their life is really ossified and hard to, hard to shift and can often be very unhelpful. Like a lot of what we focus on in psychotherapy is like what Carl Rogers, who was kind of very important in person-centered therapy, he said that psychotherapy is a move from psychological rigidity to psychological flexibility. The more flexibly you can adapt your mindset to the different challenges that life throws at you, the more psychologically healthy you'll be. And so I guess when you're working with children and adolescents, you have an opportunity to help them construct that narrative that's more helpful and also more flexible definitely yeah but i think it's easier said than done yeah i mean very much so yeah yeah but i see your point uh what about you anya what areas are you interested in so i am really excited to learn some psychotherapy skills we we've just had sort of our in you know our introductions to psychotherapy kind of how how it will practically work uh lectures recently and um and i think sort of you know cases are going to be assigned quite soon um and i think i'm excited for the yeah to kind of develop those skills i think to have the supervision of how to treat that patient um i think it will be really cool to have one patient that you look after for a year and work with and and try to help and and that you have kind of I guess fairly close supervision for that one patient um I uh yeah so I think that will be that will be cool and I think I'm excited to see how I can I guess hopefully work those skills into day-to-day psychiatric life as well maybe I don't know if you found that you can work your psychotherapeutic skills into non- like into contexts that aren't just formal psychotherapy. Yeah, I mean, for me, psych- learning about psychotherapy was quite game-changing. Obviously, I'm I'm training in it. But in answer to your question, 100%, and, and not only do I think you can transfer skills from psychotherapy to day-to-day psychiatric practice, I think you should. And I also think it, like doing psychiatry without a bit of a psychotherapeutic backbone is much more dilute and much less effective, I think. And that's, you know, I can I can think about different schools of thought and even just off the top of my head, learning to listen and to get patients to speak spontaneously like you would in psychoanalysis is really helpful. 
because you get people to understand themselves a bit better. Learning a little bit about dialectical behavior therapy and a bit about how to regulate their emotions, you're going to use every day. Learning a bit about how people construct their experiences by you know, linking their behavior, thoughts and emotions as you do in CBT. Again, these are crucial things which are going to apply to most of the patients we see. So being conversant in those skills and those theories, I, I can't imagine doing my work without that. And I think it's from a position of not having properly started it yet. So I, this may be wrong, but um, it feels so practical. Like I so often on my day to day job, I have felt frustrated by my inability to really do anything to take away the suffering that someone is experiencing, you know, in that moment or in that week, the medications take time to work. Whereas the types of things that you've described in terms of um, knowing how to I guess, explain to someone how to they can regulate their emotions and guide them through that process. Um, I'm sure not every, I'm sure it doesn't work for everyone, but um, how, like, how awesome is that if, yeah. you, if you have that that you can give to someone? Yeah, and the funny thing about it is a lot of it goes unsaid. A lot of psychotherapeutic skills, for example, learning how to listen properly so you can be more containing. The patient might not necessarily have any idea that you've, consciously use skills that you've acquired in the room and yet they leave the room feeling more relaxed feeling like someone has heard them feeling hopefully a bit safer feeling a bit more confident a lot of the skills are actually non-verbal and and they're not like formally a lot of psychotherapy isn't telling someone but almost demonstrating so for example you demonstrate acceptance towards a, a, a patient or a client and they feel more accepting of themselves, things like that. So that a lot of it's very demonstrative. Alex, do you find you ever use your psychotherapy skills with your friends when they come to you with problems going on in their own lives? Yes. <laughs> I don't know how much I'm going to elaborate on that, but I do. I'm in this job because I spend a lot of time thinking about why people are the way they are. And also a lot of the skills, once you learn them, you kind of internalize them. And they just seem like automatic responses. I think actually talking about how you use psychotherapeutic skills once you've learned them in your personal life is very important because I think they can be overused or used badly. So I think if, if you are training in therapy, you have to be really conscious about what you're doing with people in your life outside of the therapy room. I think you have to consciously work on not being a therapist with them. And that doesn't mean... For example, not listening properly or not containing someone emotionally, because those are super helpful. Um, but I try and as as much as possible be like a normal person outside and not put on that therapist hat to the degree that I can. Alex, do you have anyone coming up that you're going to interview that you want to tell us about? Yeah, so I'm going to... My next interview with is with someone called uh, Dr. Ian McGillchrist. So he's a psychiatrist that actually trained at the Maudsley a long time ago. And he wrote a book which came out in 2010 called The Master and His Emissary, which is about the difference between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain. Because we, I think most people have talked a little, know a little bit about the differences, but there are a lot of misconceptions, for example, that the left hemisphere is logical and the right hemisphere is artistic. 
and that's not actually quite how it is. So he he goes into those differences in a lot of detail and nuance. He he thinks that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere actually see the world in a different way, that they they see the world as a totally different place. And he also thinks that as a culture in the West, we've become too left hemisphere dominated in how we see things, and that's causing a lot of our problems. So I think to break it down as concisely as possible, I think he sees the left hemisphere as about focus and deconstructing things into their component parts. And the right hemisphere is about appreciating the whole picture, the whole gestalt, how it appears at once. And he feels that the left hemisphere should be essentially subservient to the right hemisphere. So the left hemisphere is the emissary and the right hemisphere is the master. But he thinks as a, as a culture, we've become too left hemisphere dominated that we see, we can't see the forest for the trees, essentially. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that interview, yeah. What's your favourite part of training been so far? So I really enjoyed doing my psychodynamic training, which is seeing someone, as you're about to do, for a year of psychodynamic therapy. And that was in kind of the first half of my training, and now I'm in the second half. And what I enjoy about that is you have a lot less commitments like exams and things like that. And you have a special interest day, so a day to do whatever you want, essentially. And so in the second half of training, you're really free to start constructing your own career. So you can think much more consciously about having acquired a certain base level of skills. You can think about really what you're interested in and then how you can become more involved with that and so that's that's been and that's why I'm doing things like this and and my more in-depth psychotherapy training so I think the the registrar years are really great for that reason do you have any tips for us as young trainees so I guess the tips are related to what I've, I've talked about already which is there are like a, some base level commitments which you have to get out of the way which are important like I don't think you should neglect them. Um, preparing for your exams, making sure you can do some of the fundamental things that all psychiatrists should do. But then having done that, I think you should then follow your enthusiasm. So find what aspects of the job or what areas within psychiatry make you feel engaged and fascinated. And... The reason you should do that is because getting good at anything is going to require so many hours of hard work and diligence. Ultimately, it's the enthusiasm that's going to guide you through. And also, the that level of engagement and fascination is a signal that not only is it useful for you, but in all likelihood, it's going to bring value to other people. So if I'm doing a talk about something that I'm interested in, I'm also looking to see if I'm when we used to be able to do talks in person, you want to look and see how people respond. And there is a really particular look that people have on their face when they feel engaged and fascinated. So you're constantly looking for that resonance. Like, am I boring the person or are they really grappling seriously with what I'm talking about? And obviously people are different. So people have different interests, but... Yeah, so I would say follow follow your enthusiasm, follow what what you could do. At, at the beginning of the podcast, you said, Rebecca, 
I can't believe I get paid to do this. And that's the feeling, that feeling where if you could actually get paid for it, it would be like a bonus. All right, guys, thanks for joining me. I look forward to seeing interviews you guys make. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast we'd love it if you share it with a friend or you could give us a rating on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen if you fancy it you can even buy us a coffee to support the team and the links for that will be in the show notes thanks for listening